Um, hey, if you have Bibles, go ahead and open them. Uh, we're going we're gonna to jump around, uh, spend a lot of time in Genesis 1 and 2, but I want you to open uh, to 1 Samuel uh, chapter 3, 1 Samuel chapter 3, and I'm going to open with you. If you have phone apps, that's, that's totally appropriate. No judgment here if you want to read the Bible from your, your phone. Uh, however you want to consume God's word, you do it. Um, 1 Samuel. We are kicking off a six-week sermon series called Vitals. And the idea behind the sermon series is that we want to help our people calibrate their worldviews around uh, that which is vital. And that is who God is and who the Bible says God is. And to set up this series and to set up this message tonight, uh, I want to read from this passage in 1 Samuel. Um, if, you don't, if you've never read the Old Testament or never read the Bible before, uh, 1 Samuel is really maybe the first prophet or the first king even, uh, uh, or the first priest, or a, a famous priest, um, w- once you get into like the Davidic era of the Bible, meaning once King David starts to come about. Samuel's the guy who actually uh, helps find David. Um, but at the very beginning of 1 Samuel, he's a little boy. And the way that the priestly system is set up at that time period, uh, you are kind of identified from an early age, uh, almost like a Padawan, if you are a, a Star Wars fan, right? And so Samuel was like this guy who had a high midichlorian count, and so they were like, yeah, you. So he gets identified by this guy, Eli, and the way that this would happen is you would go and live in the home of your, your tutor. There would be a tutor with a couple of different young Padawan priests, and this is what's happening here. Samuel's bunking up at Eli's house. It's Eli, his family, his kids, and then Samuel had like the garage, two-bedroom, three-bath apartment or whatever. That's, I guess, I think that's where he lived. That's what it says in the Hebrew. Um, but here's the, here's the important part about what we're going to look uh, read here. Samuel, um, he knows who God is, but he hasn't been calibrated yet. And I want you to notice what happens in the progression of things uh, as Samuel, for the first time, is starting to hear God talk to him. Uh, many of you can remember the first time God started talking to you in maybe a still, small voice, and it kind of freaked you out a little bit. Um, it kind of felt like you are in a horror movie. You were like, oh, i got to get out of this house now, right? Uh, Samuel doesn't have quite that same reaction, but I want you to notice what kind of reaction he does have. Starting in verse 1, and we'll read through verse uh, 11, um, but only verse 10 and 11 will be on the screen, so you have to read with me in the Bible. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Here's what uh, the, the Bible writes. Now the young man Samuel was ministering to the Lord under Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days, and there was no frequent vision. In other words... Um, the people of God typically received revelation from God in that time period through visions and through the law. Those are the two means of, of, of revelation coming in. So you could read the law, or a priest or a prophet could get up and say, oh, I've had this vision, God told me, thus said the Lord. But that was rare in those time periods. We didn't have that. At that time, verse 2, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was laying down, lying down in his own place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, meaning he wasn't dead. And um, Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. Then the Lord called Samuel. And he said, here I am. And he ran to Eli and said, here I am, for you called me. But he, Eli, said, I did not call. Lie down again. So he went and he lay down. Uh, Any of you guys ever babysat before? Anybody babysat? Anybody have younger siblings? Anybody had to put a, a young kid to sleep? Right? This is the scenario that's going on here. You all know this. When you put a kid to sleep, there is the initial act of putting them down, which is followed by the negotiations, right? You guys know this. It's like, okay, it's time to go to sleep. I read the book. We prayed. We sang Jesus loved me. I turned out the light, turned on the, like, glow-in-the-dark thing, right? Made sure there were no monsters under the bed. Made sure there were no sounds creaking. Everyone's fine. You get up to tiptoe out, and then the kid goes, but wait, 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 wait. I need one more thing. I have to go to the bathroom. I forgot to eat dinner. I need more candy. Um, I didn't do my math homework, even though I'm not in school, I have homework, right? And there's the negotiations, no, go to bed, no, I don't want to go to bed, if you don't go to bed now, I'll ground you tomorrow, fine, ground me, that didn't work, okay, right? And this is what's going on here, you can see this, Uh, Samuel comes in and Eli is going, hey, you called me, and you can imagine, um, uh, uh, Samuel came in, uh, Eli says to himself, okay, wait a minute, he's negotiating at this point, he just needs to go to bed, he says he's hearing from God, just, hey, go lay down, okay. So that's what happens. Um, Verse 8, and the Lord called Samuel again. I'm sorry, verse 6, and the Lord called Samuel again. Samuel, and Samuel rose, and he went to Eli and said, here I am, for you called me. 
But Eli said, I did not call my son. Lie down again. Go to sleep. Okay? It's 10 p.m. And the cubs are on. I would really like for you to go to sleep. Not that that happens in my household. That's not what goes on with me and my daughter and son every night. Um, but, you know. Uh, verse 7. Now Samuel did not know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been real, revealed to him. Now this is an important verse. Why is Samuel so confused right here? He's never heard God's voice. And so the first time you hear God's voice, you're like, oh, it was deep. I guess it's a man's voice. Who's the closest man? It was probably him, right? And that's what he's doing. He's, this is just the logical progression of things. He's not able to distinguish between Eli's voice and the voice of God. And so every time he hears this deep voice, he goes in and talks to Eli. Eli thinks this kid is just trying to stay awake. There's a lot of confusion going on here. Verse 8. And the Lord called Samuel again the third time. And he arose, and he went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. And notice what happens here. This is the response of a wise believer. This is the response of a seasoned uh, follower of Yahweh, someone who has prayed to God before and who's heard his voice, and his spirit is quickened. He knows what's going on. Notice how he responds. Verse 9, Therefore Eli said to Samuel, Go, lie down. And if he calls you, you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went down, went and lay down in his place. Verse 10. And the Lord came and stood, calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And notice what Samuel says now. And Samuel said, Speak, for your servant hears. Verse 11. Then the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I'm about to do a thing in Israel, in which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. So what's just happened here? Samuel did not know God. He kind of knew God, but he'd never heard God speak. God speaking to him for the first time. He now has to get his ears calibrated, his eyes calibrated to who God is. And this passage right here is such a critically descriptive passage for the Christian life. For this reason, here's the number one problem um, I observe, our pastoral staff observes about young believers, and by that I mean people who are new Christians or people who are younger and Christians. And here's what it is. It's going to come on the screen. Christians often, we see the right things, but we don't see them rightly. We see the right things, we just don't see them rightly. Or maybe in Samuel's case, we hear the right things, we just don't hear them rightly. We sense the right things, we just don't sense them correctly. And what I mean by that is that the problem is not necessarily that we, we, have, we can't see it all, it's that our, it's our lenses are out of focus, okay? We, we, especially if you grew up in the church, maybe this is your story, you understand that there's a God, you believe in that, and God is a concept, you pray to God, but it's like this blurry thing off in the distance, and you're just kind of like randomly shooting things up his way and hoping he's not moving around because you can't really tell. And the purpose of doing theology, of reading the Bible, of coming to understand God's attributes, is that God in his mercy would start to take that lens and clarify it so that you don't just see this blur over here, so that you increasingly begin to see who God is as he's revealed himself, and so that when he moves, you move with him. When he talks, you listen. This is the process of spiritual growth. And this is what we want to do over the next six weeks, is just begin to do some lens correction, some, some, uh, some audio correction, some sensing corrections, to, to deal with some of these vital things that are going to help you not just know God as a concept, but come to know God intimately as a father who loves you, who created you with a purpose, and who wants to see you live a life that is full of overflowing joy and lasting satisfaction. And the way that we're going to do that is that we're going to ask two questions of all of the attributes that we look at. In other words, we're going to look at what the Bible says, or, or rather, how God reveals himself in the Bible. In other words, God's own self-disclosure about who he is in terms of what we call his essential nature or characteristics. Okay? And we're going to always ask two questions anytime we look at any of these. So uh, over the next six weeks, we'll ask these two questions each week. Number one, what does this tell us about God? Okay? So God says, hey, here's who I am. This is how you can come to understand me and my essential nature and characteristics, right? But if we just ask that question, again, I think we'd still have something blurry out there. So we need a second, secondary question to come support and complement that. And that's this question. What does this mean for us? 
what does this mean about God, and what does this mean for us? Meaning, if this is who God is, then therefore this is what it means for my life, practically. We take the theology, and we really press it down into the anthropology uh, to see what goes on there. Today, what we're going to do is look at the essential nature of God. The very most basic thing, if we could reduce all of the characteristics of God down to one uh, simple statement, it would be this statement here. It's a statement probably many of you, if you grew up in America or in an English-speaking uh, context, it's something you probably know. It's this mealtime prayer that you guys have probably said over and over again. You can, I'm going to start it, and you can say it with me if you want to. God is great. God is good. Let us thank him for our fellowship time, right? Okay. God's great, God's good, let us thank him for his food, or thank him for his food, right? Um, you said this, right? And you just think, oh, it's, it rhymes, right? It just sounds good. It's easy to remember. It's like a form template, all that stuff. There's a lot of, like, sight words that kids can read. No, this is actually one of the most theologically accurate things you could ever say. The essential nature of God is this. He is both great and good. And today what we're going to do is look at what the Bible says about God's goodness and his greatness and how that exists in his being. But before we jump into that, I want to invite you to pray. Uh, and in fact, I want you to pray with me the prayer we just had on the screen here, right? And I want to just kind of help you to just focus in on what we're going to do. So if you'll just kind of close your eyes and get into a prayerful uh, situation, I want to invite you to just pray this out loud. God is great. God is good. Let us thank him for our fellowship time. Can you, just in the quietness of where you are, thank God for this fellowship time? Now, can you thank God for his greatness and ask that he would make it even clear what it means that he is great? And now would you take just a, a, a few seconds to thank God for his goodness and ask him to make it just eminently clear to you what that means? God, you are great and you are good both of them perfectly, not intention for you, not a struggle, equally 100% all the time, great and good, and that is amazing news for us. Would you, O oh Lord, please, in your mercy, teach us what that means today, that we wouldn't any longer be confused about how you move and how you talk and how you breathe on us, that we would see it and sense it and hear it and understand it and be filled up by it so that we can move accordingly in coordination with who you are and with your will for us and with your will for this community, Lord, that you might uh, produce good in us and produce good in the city of Orlando for your glory and for our good. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Amen. If you have your Bibles or phones still open, I want to invite you to flip, uh, flip over to the left a little bit to Genesis chapter 1. We're going to just focus on one verse in Genesis chapter 1, and that verse is in Genesis 1, 1 the first verse in the Bible. And the reason I just want to focus on this verse is I want you to notice that the very start of this whole deal, God makes it incredibly clear who he is. He doesn't want you to go one verse and be confused. From the get-go, right out of the park, first shot down, God hits a home run, right? Uh, start of the game, kickoff, runs back for a touchdown, okay? If you don't like football, it's like, the first opening scene of the Oscars, and she wears a good dress, and she wins an award, right? I don't know. I don't know what girls like. I'm a guy. I'm sorry. Um, I'll, I'll research that with my wife later. Okay. So here's it is. Verse 1. Um, Bereshit. That's how it begins in the Hebrew. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And on the next screen here, here is my... Uh, unpacking of what I think this verse means. In the beginning, God created the place where you're born, the place where you go when you die, and the, life, the, me the way we measure lifespan in between. Think about that. He creates the place you're born, earth. He creates the place you go when you die, if you trust in Jesus, the heavens. And he creates time. He creates temporality. In the beginning, that's a statement where God is saying, hey, there was no time. How do we measure change? We don't. There's timelessness. You want to measure change? Yes, I would like to measure change now. Time. Whoa, right? He creates it all. So I just want you to think about the implications of this. Everything we understand about our very existence as human beings used to not be created. But God was still existing. 
and before all of that was created, our whole way of thinking about things, God existed. He created the place we're born, the place we go when we die, and the way we measure our lifespan between, he creates time such that we can now process and understand when things change. It was a minute, uh, now it's two minutes. Oh, well, what happened in between? Time. Whoa. Right? He created all of that out of nothing. Ex nihilo is what the, the Latin fathers would say. He created everything. And that leads us to this really important understanding about the essential ingredient of God's character, and that's this. God is transcendently great. He exists separately from this broken universe. The first thing to know about God is that God is great. And what do we mean by great? He's transcendently great. If this table right here is God, right? I mean, I'm sorry, if this table right here is the universe, God exists apart from it. He is not equal to the universe. That's why we don't pray to the universe. He is independent of this creation, this broken creation that, that we sense all around us, this creation that doesn't quite work like it's supposed to. There's like crazy hurricanes which hit, hit Puerto Rico, and there's another hurricane that hits Puerto Rico, right? They're, they're just bad people who do evil things. They're suffering in the world. There's like comets that hit planets. I'm sure there's aliens somewhere who are just like, geez, what is going on in the universe, right? The universe is incredibly broken. The thing we learned from the very beginning of the Bible is that God exists independently of that. In fact, there was nothing, there was not this table. And then God was like, table. And there it was, right? That's who God is. He's transcendently great. When we talk about God's greatness, we mean that he transcends all of this. He's independent of his creation. That's God. And he was perfectly consent, uh, content living as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you know, playing Texas Hold'em as the Trinity, just like chilling, right? Chilling together as the Trinity. And then one day, he was like, universe. Um, now, there's a lot of confusion about uh, what theologians mean when they say transcendently great. So I want to take you through what this doesn't mean so that we can have a, a compare and contrast here. Um, so there's a, a theologian named Friedrich Schle uh, Schleiermacher uh, who lived in Germany uh, in the 1800s. And he was probably the most famous pastor and theologian in Germany at that time period. And the way he basically articulated what God was in terms of his transcendence is he says God is like the best human being ever. Like he's this qualitatively amazing human being. He is the supreme human being out here. And I remember I was in seminary and I was learning this in the mid-2000s and I'm reading Schleiermacher and I raised my hand and asked my uh, theology professor, I said, so basically God is like Michael Jordan or LeBron James and human beings are every other basketball player? And my professor thought about it for a while and he was like, Yes, that's what Schleiermacher is saying, right? So if you think about this, if you know anything about basketball, like Michael Jordan is probably arguably the greatest basketball player of all time, or if you watch current basketball, it's LeBron James. He, LeBron James is just so much qualitatively better than every other basketball player in any, like, measurable you want to look at. Height, weight, speed, agility, balance, shooting, percentages, efficiency, defense, off. I mean, he's just incredible. Um, Michael Jordan was that way when I was growing up and I was kind of your age. Um, and I remember in one game, Michael Jordan, in, in really one of the first times he played in Boston in the late 80s, he played this other player named Larry Bird, and he was so um, amazingly stupid good, just like there were no words, right? When, they, when he got done with this one contest, someone came up to Larry Bird, who, whose team actually won, and they said, what did you think about Michael Jordan? And he said, that wasn't Michael Jordan out there, that was God in Michael Jordan's body, Right? And he said that because, I mean, he dropped like over 60 points in the Boston Garden. It was just like, like everyone was just going crazy because at that time no one scored 60 points on, in the Boston Garden, right? And um, so Labor's expressing the sentiment that Michael Jordan is just qualitatively better than everyone else, right? And you, you've probably met people at time. They're just like so like kind and good. They're like the most kind person. They never get rattled. And you're like, that person is qualitatively better than me, right? Or you know somebody who's like, in your school, and they're just like, they make 100 on everything. They're the person who's like, I'm so scared. I studied forever, and I took this test. I think I'm going to make a C. And they get it back, and it's like 104, right? That person, and that person's just qualitative. Some of you are like, that's me. Like, you're like, awkward, that's me. Don't say anything. But I already, already admitted this. Oh, I can't hold my feelings, right? So that person is qualitatively better than everybody else. And what Schleiermacher is saying here is that when God uh, when we read about God in Genesis 1 saying that he's independent of his creation, that they're just saying he's like a human being who's really, 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 really good. 
that is not what the Bible is saying. The Bible is not saying that God is better than us. He's not just better. He is categorically different than us. God is not just better. He's not the best human being. He is a completely different category of being. So let's just talk about this philosophically for a second. Moses, right? Moses is hanging out with the burning bush. If you remember this, if you've ever seen the Prince of Egypt uh, or the other documentary about Exodus called the Ten Commandments, right? Starring Charlton Heston, the president of the NRA, right? You've never seen, if you haven't seen this, this is really funny to go, this is Moses and he loved guns. Like, it's just a very interesting mix there. Um, but if you've ever read Exodus or seen these films, you know that, that Moses is talking to the burning bush. And in this moment, he looks to, to this God here and he says, this God, whoever you are, reveal yourself. Tell me your divine name. And it's very interesting what, what God says there, because the way he answers is basically, I am that I am. And so we translate that Yahweh. And that term there means actually this, I am existence. I am being. In other words, I am the origin of what it means to be a being. I am being. And every other being that is created is a creation out of me. A human being, if there was no God, would just be a human. There's no being, because God is being. We are a human made in the image of being, right? So everything it means to exist is to be like God. Existence itself is an extension of who God is. Why? Because he is categorically different than us. He is the source and origin of all of creation. He's transcendently great. He is independent of all of this creation. All of us find our, our rest and our source in who God is. He is holy other. That's what it means that God is great. He, in the beginning, when he created time, created where we're born and where we're going to die. That's what it means that God's great. The next time you pray that and you go, God is great, you can just pause there and just start crying. Like, let the emotions come in. People are going to look at you and go, wow, that person's super spiritual. And you're like, you don't even understand. Being is God. He's the source and origin of all things. I'm cutting onions, sorry. Right? You just have that moment. Because all of those terms are loaded into that one simple phrase that God is great. But at the same time, it's not just that he's great. If it was just that he was great, we could be like, oh, that's great, right? But no, he is also something else. And we read about that in Genesis 2. See, because here's what the Bible does. In Genesis 1, it goes, God is great. And then you're like, whoa, this is an awesome book. And you flip the page, you get to Genesis 2, and you see the other half or the other side of the coin of his being. And you're just like, whoa. And so we're going to read through that here. Starting Genesis 2, starting in verse 18, all of it talks about the second aspect of his essential character. But um, we're going to start in verse 18. This one is, is pretty clear. So God has created everything. He's created the heavens and the earth. He's created the water that divides the heavens from the earth. He's now created land. He's made the water fill some of the land. And um, he has created uh, fish. He's created birds of the air. He's created land uh, animals. He's created human beings. And in verse 18, I want you to notice what God does. Then the Lord... God said, it is not good. This is the first time God says something is not good, right? It's good, it's good. First day, second day, third day, fourth day, fifth day, sixth day, Sabbath, very good. It's good, it's good. In verse 18 of chapter 2 is the first time in all of creation God says something is not good. Notice what it is. It is not good that man or humanity should be alone. God does not like Isolation for human beings. He did not create human beings to be isolated. The solution for that is called community. This is why we have life groups, because we don't want anybody to be alone. So may I replug and recommend that you, if you're not a part of a life group, find a life group. Come, come talk to me, come talk to Alec, come talk to any of our staff. We'd love to get you connected in that. So, sorry, plug over. Verse 19, now out of the, um, I'm sorry, verse 18, the second half. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. Notice what's going on here. God's created animals. He's created all kinds of animals. But they're just these forms that are going on out there. He hasn't named them, meaning he hasn't identified what everyone's going to call them. He hasn't categorize them and organize the Wikipedia page so that we can see the picture of these animals if we Google search them. That hasn't happened yet, right? It's just these kind of nameless animals going about and human beings are there. 
And God has a number of ways he could go about naming these animals. Number one, he could just name them, right? He could just be like, hey, human, come over here. See that thing over there? <laughs> That's a giraffe, right? He could do that. He didn't do that, right? He could just, like, make names appear in the sky. <laughs> Elephant, right? Um, you know, he could have created, like, the Lion King show from Animal Kingdom and just, like, trotted them out and been like, all right, right? He could have done that whole, whole thing. No, here's what God does. The, the God who created everything, who exists transcendently, independently from his creation, this powerful, sovereign, amazing God, pulls this man which he created over next to him, sits him down in a chair and says, I'm going to give you co-creation responsibility. I'm going to invite you, man, to name the animals. I'm just going to bring them up like, like a Miss America pageant. They're just going to stand here, and however you declare them, that's what we're going to call them, right? So if you've ever wondered, like, why the zebra has that name, it's because he, he trotted up a zebra, and the man was like, that is a funny-looking horse. And God was like, we could do better. And he's like, okay, zebra? I mean, I, I want to make sure we have some type of lexical animal so that when kids are learning their alphabet, they know what it is, right? So let's pick something that starts with Z. How about zebra? And God's like, I like it. Two thumbs up. And they moved along, right? And he did this for every animal. Mosquito, giraffe, uh, lemur, alligator, crocodile. And God's like, how can you tell the difference? He's like, you can tell, right? I mean, <laughs> that's how that worked. But man was intimately involved in that whole process. God could have done it on his own, but instead he gave this co-creation responsibility to mankind. This is, this is incredible. It's just incredible. We've we got to come to terms with what, what that means. And so we keep reading. Verse 21. So the Lord, I'm sorry, verse 20. The man gave, gave names to all the livestock and to all the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, who is the first man, there was not found a helper fit for him. In other words, here's what's going on. Adam's still lonely. He's got all this work to do. He's naming animals. He's like the first zoologist ever. Like the really important title, right? He is the leading expert on flora and fauna in the world, right? And yet that's not enough for him. He's still alone. And the animals are not enough of a helper for him. He's got a dog at home, but he's not happy, right? It, there's something that's missing. He needs other humans, right? And so here's what God does. Verse 21, so God, or so, so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. In the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then the man said, uh, this is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And the next passage is, therefore, you shall leave father and mother and, you know, all that stuff that we read at weddings, right? Okay, so what's going on here? What do we learn about God? The fact that this God who exists independently from creation would invite humans to come into his presence and be co-creators of things, that he would create a community for human beings who, who are alone, that he would go to great lengths to make sure that uh, humanity is custom created for one another. What, what, what's going on here? What do, we, what do we understand about God about this? And here's what we understand. We understand the second thing, and that is God is not only transcendently great, He's eminently good. God is eminently good. God interacts with the broken world. God interacts with the broken world. So I want to just focus on this, and then I'm going to put the two together. What does it mean that God interacts with this broken world? I was trying to think of a way to describe this. Because, again, he's created everything. There's, the fall hasn't yet happened but he's already established that he's going to be interacting. Again, if this is the table, if the table is the universe, God exists independently of this universe which he created. But even though he's, he could just be detached, he could be a participant observer, he could kind of stand over here at arm's length, he chooses to get intimately involved with his creation, to interact with him. He's buddies with Adam. He's hanging out with Adam. He creates Eve. He's hanging out with Adam and Eve. He creates a garden for them, right? He puts trees in there. It's like super awesome, right? And he's just, every day they wake up and they're like, what's up, God? He's like, what's up? What do you want to do? They're like, I don't know. What about you? I don't know. Let's just hang. Okay. So they put up an Eno hammock, hammock and they just, you know, grab some sweet tea and just kind of watch the sunrise. And they're like, and it was good. Maybe some coffee with a little creamer, some international delight. And they're like, how are you? Good. How are you? I'm good. And it was good, right? And they're just chilling, man. No one's wearing clothes. It's like a, it's like a communist commune, like in the garden right there, and everyone's happy, and they were naked and unashamed. It's just kind of this, it was just this thing, man. It was, it, was a, it was a beautiful thing, right? So 
What, what do we make of this, that God is intimately involved uh, in that creation? Uh, I, I tr- the only way to describe this is to describe, uh, to take something parallel and just show you about this. So uh, I'll just kind of tell this story. You know, obviously we had this hurricane that came through Orlando. Many of you, it was your first hurricane. It was horrific, and it did a lot of damage and all that stuff. Well, in, the, in its aftermath, uh, our pastors here, we just had just we were flooded with all of these requests from widows, from single moms, from people to come help do cleanup work, right? And so all our pastors got together and we rallied. If you, some of you guys may have helped. Uh, I know Megan Keller was there because she was in one of the photos. And, um, but we, we had this rally last Saturday where we were going to clean up and we were going to go out and help. And it was just an incredible thing. Chainsaws were flying and trees were getting cut down and there were rakes and there were, there were things and gloves and, you know, the whole deal, right? Well, so a lot of people helped. But this is maybe important for us, and I, I don't want to say that this person is God-like, but in our context, maybe the most important or most visible person is our senior pastor, David Youth. Now, if you don't know David Youth, um, you'll see him on Sunday if you're there. I mean, he's 6'6". Six, six. He's from, you know, Denmark, right? I mean, or his family's from Denmark by way of Arkansas, which is like the weirdest accent ever, right? His last name is Youth, but he's not a youth pastor, which I think was a missed career for him, Right? Like, could have easily made I love my youth pastor shirts with his picture on there, but I'm just saying. If you guys want to make money on that later, I want marketing rights. That's all I'm saying. Um, but you can't miss him. I mean, 6'6", six, six, like, probably one of the 15 best pastor communicators in America. Former president of the Florida State Baptist Convention. Sat on the board for the International Mission Board that brought David Platt on board. Best friends with David Platt and Russell Moore and all that crew. Like, just super pastor to the pastors. Like, rock star among southern baptists loves brazilians loves cubans loves puerto ricans loves haitians loves everybody right i mean david youth the rock star among us has security detail when he's preaching the gospel because he's d youth right that's just how he rolls okay this is an important person if i can think of anybody who might say on a saturday I might need to skip this because I got to preach tonight and then three times tomorrow. It's going to be on Fox. It's going to be live streamed for like five million people in Brazil. I got to have the suit game and the the polo tucked in game and the Bible game ready to go. It would be D-Youth, right? You know what I'm talking about? Like if there's one person who says, sorry, I can't help. None of us in this room would be like, I can't believe David Youth didn't help, right? Right? That we would understand that because that's just part of his being. But check out this picture here. You know who that guy is on the left? That's your boy D Youth, right there. <laughs> with a rake, mind you. And there are some other photos of him like carrying whole trees, like by himself, with superhuman strength, right? He might be the Incredible Hulk. I'm not sure. We don't have details to verify that. But look at him. He's got a rake. He's helping out. And they took a picture. He probably, if he saw that there was someone there, he'd be like, go to somebody else. I just want to help, right? Th- there was a lot of brokenness, a lot of stuff was messed up. And yet, our senior pastor got involved. It wasn't enough for him to just stand independently at arm's length and just go, you guys go get involved. He himself, the senior leader of our organization, got intimately involved with the cleanup work. And this is what Genesis 2 is communicating on so much more of a level about God, okay? David Youth is not God. He's a good human being, right? He's a good human being. God is a wholly other being. But that God who created everything, he is intimately involved with this broken world he's created. And that leads us to this clear teaching um, on what it means about God's essential nature, and that's this. As Christians, we are called to live within and to live out the tension of God's character. That God is both great and good. That he exists independently from his creation— Even despite that, he still chooses to be intimately involved with his creation. He is eminently good. And if that's what uh, the Bible says about God, that God is both great and good, and that there is this tension in his character, not because God has tension, but because that's really hard for us to imagine someone so great and so good existing as the same, you know, being. The the challenge for us as Christians is that we've got to learn to become comfortable living in the tension of God's character. God's expectation for us is to begin to increasingly adopt his character, which means he doesn't just want us to be good people, and he doesn't just want us to be great people. He wants us to be both great and good. And for him, that's the same thing. What it means to be godly 
to have godly character is that your character is so formed by God, you are both striving for greatness and you are also striving for goodness at the same time and you are never doing one over the other or you are out of balance. The balance of the Christian life means that you're going to be asking uh, kind of these four questions right here. And I think they're on your handout. They'll be on the screen. It's this. If he, God, exists separately from a broken world, and if he lovingly interacts with a broken world, then we are called, I am called, to live separately from a broken world, and I'm called to lovingly interact with a broken world. And let me give you just an analogy about this. There's a guy named D.L. Moody who gave this uh, sermon one time, and he said basically that the Christian church, or we could even say this, the whole world is like the ship that was wrecked in sea. So the ship, you can like think about the first part of like, uh, like Little Mermaid when the ship's going down, right? Okay, for all you Disney people. Or Frozen, that one sad scene that we always fast forward through, right, where the parents die, right? So the ship is in the water, and there's people that are like swimming in the wreckage. Well, what happens to the church? The church is like this life raft full of people who've all been pulled out of the water by Jesus. Jesus is this life raft that's holding them up. And th their job is to swim wherever they see wreckage and pull people out, right? And that's what it means to be a believer. You're going wherever you see wreckage, you're finding people, and you're preaching the gospel. You're throwing this life raft to them to pull them out of this. And this is a beautiful picture of God's character manifest in his people. Because on the one hand, we who are on the raft, we have to live on the raft. We've got to be transcendent from the world. We've got to be outside of this shipwrecked world here. Because if we're in the world, we're going to drown, right? But on the other hand, we can't just sit in the raft and be like, I'm so glad I'm in the raft. Man, it's sunny outside, right? What's the sound of that? Oh, can I try on, can I even put my beats on so I can drown out all of those people who are literally drowning over there? It's so annoying, right? No, that would, be, that would make us really terrible people. The call to be a Christian is you're great, you're transcendent from this broken world, but you're also, wherever you see wreckage, you're swimming over there. You're interacting with that to pull people out. And so the challenge for us, the tension is we live in a raft, but we've got to take that raft wherever people are and pull more people in. That's the manifestation of God's character in our lives. And so there's two questions I want us to begin asking as we do this series. Number one, how does God want me to live separately from a broken world in any area of life? And number two, how does God want me to lovingly interact with a broken world in any area of life? Okay. How does God want me to live separately, to be transcendent from this world? How does God want me to also, being someone who's transcendent, lovingly interact with this world? And I want to just make this really practical for you guys in three key areas. Number one, kind of faith and um, the beliefs and practice. Number two, and friendships. And then I saved the best for last. We'll talk about romantic relationships. Because I have a theory that greatness and goodness might explain why you may not be dating, right, if I'm honest, right? And how when we get out of balance in those areas, it actually affects even our romantic relationships. So that's a tease. I just want to keep you guys engaged, right, as I go through the boring application points. They're like, oh, theology, Ugh, get to dating. Come on, Doug. So here we go. Let's start with uh, theology, belief and practice. Here's the distinction that we tend to make when we talk about belief and practice. The first one is this. And so what I would mean is, or let me uh, maybe reframe it like this. Again, God is both great and good. He expects us to be both great and good in all areas of life and to strive towards greatness and goodness in our lives, right? But we tend to be out of balance uh, in either moving completely towards greatness or completely towards goodness in any area of our life. And so let's talk about how we do that in theology or in belief and practice. Number one, the first way you do that is we think about the sacred secular line. You guys... Uh, familiar with this? It's like certain things are sacred and certain things are secular. Like there's, there's like Christian stuff and there's like worldly stuff. And we tend to do this with our art. That's kind of the first thing, especially like when you're 15, 16, you're coming up, especially if you've been raised in a Christian home, conservative Christian home. Um, for me, it was the opposite. I was raised in a really pagan home. So like Christ listening to Christian music was super rebellious. My dad would come in the room. He's like, are you listening to Lecrae? No, you go... <laughs> You go, put on Tupac. And I'd be like, oh, Dad, no. Yeah, I'll listen to Tupac. Yeah, ha, ha, ha. okay, that's right. Loving Tupac. And my dad be gone. I'm like, I'm putting in Lecrae, right? Because that was my home. Some of you may have had a different experience, I'm guessing, right? So uh, it, it happens kind of right there, right? You get a CD, like maybe it's the first time you go buy a CD if you've got like strict Christian parents and you're like, hey, Mom, for me, okay, you guys don't buy CDs anymore. See, I've just dated myself. For me, let me just tell you how I did things. I would be like, hey, Dad, I'm going to go to Walmart and buy a CD. 
because like at Walmart, they would, they would sell singles on CDs. Like you get a CD single of one song. I don't know why you do that. It seems like a waste of megabytes, right? But it was the 90s. Anyway, so I would go and I'd be like, hey, I want to buy a CD. And my dad would be like, well, what kind of CD is that, right? You know, like, uh, be like, well, you know, it's a Christian CD. Oh, right? And I can only imagine my friends had the same thing. My friend Brad, um, let's see, I'm trying to think well, what came out. Like the new, uh, the new Foo Fighters came out in 1995. Uh, they had uh, their first album that came out. And, you know, so Brad was, my friend Brad was raised in a very Christian home. And so uh, he called, he like spent the night at my house, his pagan friend, I wasn't a Christian then. He spent the night at my house and was like, oh, hey, uh, I forgot some things, um, you know, at my house. Uh, can we go to Walmart? I can buy like a toothbrush and toothpaste. And I was like, you live like two blocks. Like, let's just walk over there. He's like, no, 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 I don't want to wake my parents up. And I'm like, it's five in the afternoon, like. Right? He's like, no, 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 we really got to go to Walmart. And I was like, okay, because I'm from Texas, right? So anytime you need anything, you just go to Walmart, right? Anybody else from Arkansas, you get that, right? Anybody else call it Walmarts, right? That was me. So anyway, um, so we would get in the car, my mom would drive, because my mom was complicit in anything we did. My mom was just like, you want to go to Walmart? Sure, let's go, because my mom was super cool like that. Anyway, so we get in the car, and we drive to Walmarts, right? And Brad's like, uh, I'm going to go over here to the toothpaste. Oh, wait, is that a music section? Oh, um, Ah, we should, while we're in the area, we should go over there and just peruse the music. So we're over, we're looking through the CDs or whatever, and he sees the new Foo Fighters album, and he's like, hey, dude, you want me to get this? And I was like, yes. It's the drummer from Nirvana as a front man in a new band. I'm in, right? Some of you are like, I don't know any of that stuff right now. Google search, right, and listen to the first Foo Fighters album. It's amazing. May contain language. Um, so he got the Foo Fighters album, and I remember he checked out, we went home and listened to it, and we were just like, like, this is amazing. And so I remember we went to drop Brad off the next day, right? And I didn't know the rules because I'm not a Christian, right? And I didn't grow up in a conservative Christian home. But we're walking in on the porch. His mom's there. She's, like, super conservative Christian. I love Monica. Shout out, Monica, if you're listening to this online, right? Um, and Monica was like, how was your time? I was like, it was awesome. We got the new Foo Fighters album. And Brad's like, right? And I'm like, what? It was awesome. I'm just telling everybody, you know, when you enjoy something, you tell everybody about it. Just like the gospel. I didn't say that. I was actually not a Christian. I was like, oh, that's awesome. So I said that, and Monica goes, first question, is it a Christian album, right? And I was like, oh, no. And Brad's like, oh, right? So Monica's doing like the, you know, this thing here with the hand on the hip. And so Brad's like, oh, and zips the duffel, like hands it over. And she's like, okay, this is going in the garbage because we only listen to sacred music in this house, right? And so she takes it and puts it in the garbage. And I was like, bro, if you're just going to throw it away, can you give it to me? Like, I want to listen to that album. And she's like, no, 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 no. I don't want your ears to be soiled. And I'm like, what do you mean soiled? I've already listened to the whole album like 12 times. Like, I just want it for like historical record that I had that album. But okay, whatever. I'll just go to Walmart later and buy one, right? So some of you may have grown up in that kind of household, right? Where maybe it wasn't, it wasn't the, uh, the, the music. Maybe it was the books, right? Oh, Harry Potter. They have wizards in Harry Potter. You know where wizards come from. Hell, right? <laughs> you read Harry Potter, that's a gateway into much harder literature, like the Chronicles of Narnia, right? <laughs> Lord of the Rings, all that crazy pagan stuff, right? Or maybe for you it was films. Harry Potter, right? <laughs> Can't watch those Harry Potter films, right? Because, you know, British guys on, you know like those flying things. Obviously, that's a reference to drugs, right? <laughs> so, hey, this is the, the problem with this, and I'm belaboring a point, is there's this whole sacred, sacred secular div uh, divide here, right? What's the problem? The problem is there's too much of an emphasis on the greatness. You've got to be holy. 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 You've got to be different than the world. You've got to be different than the world. You've got to be different. Yes, we've got to be apart from the world in the life raft. But the world is engaging this, so on some level, we ought to think through our art and if there's possibly a way to engage it so that we can be intimately involved with the world, right? Okay, so that we can maybe use some of this art to leverage the gospel so we can pull people onto that raft. We can be great with our art. We've also got to be good with our art, right? Okay, this is what the Bible says. In fact, in uh, 1 Corinthians 6.12, here's what Paul says. He says, everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. And so Paul's recommendation in light of who God is in terms of his greatness and his goodness is this. God's created everything. So everything is permissible because it's created. Everything, everything, everything is permissible because it's created. 
by the creator God who created life and death and time, right? But that's not the question we ask as believers because we are also created beings. We are called to be set apart. So we ask, is this, per- is this beneficial? Is this going to benefit my life? Is this art right here going to benefit my life? Is the new Snoop Dogg album really going to benefit your life, Doug? I mean, there's a song on there that talks about, like, misogyny and, like, other terrible things. Should you be interacting with this art? Is there anything redeemable about this art? Is there someone who is going to hell because you haven't told them how the gospel is present in that new Snoop Dogg track? I probably don't think so. So, Doug, maybe just think through your art a little bit more. Why? Because we are called to be great. Even though when we're trying to be good in art, we're called to be great, right? So that's how that works in Galatians 5. All right, second one, friendships. I'm getting to dating relationships. Sorry for belaboring this point. Friendships. On the one hand, on the one hand, there are two, uh, two areas we want to avoid. Number one is judging your friends, which is one extreme. On the other end, it's avoiding conflict, right? So way over here on this end, when you're, you're too much on a God is great, so I'm great side, God is holy, so I'm a holy side, it's, it's the judging your friends, like, oh, well, we're not going to be like the world. So you have your friends, your roommates, whatever, like, you know, again, roommate starts reading Harry Potter, and you're like, you shouldn't read Harry Potter, right? Wizards from the devil. My mom told me, I agree, like, this is how it happens, right? And if you're someone who thinks Harry Potter's terrible, I'm not making fun of you. I'm just telling you, this is the kind of stuff that happens, right? Hey, uh, should you really be eating that? Should you, you're trying to lose weight. Should you really be eating that, right? Okay, might as well rub it on your hips. That's where it's going anyway, right? I hear girls say this all the time to other girls, or if they don't say it, they ask it in the form of a question as if that's different. Should you be eating that, right? Have scientists proven that somehow that doesn't, like, you know, hurt your body, right? This is the way sometimes girls interact or guys will say this, bro, you're looking heavy. Are you not sleeping? Man, oh, gosh, looking tubby right now. And guys are like, thanks, I want to go work out with you now because I'm so motivated by that, right? So you're just constantly sitting in critical judgment of your friends as the Christian. Hey, shouldn't be watching that movie. No, you shouldn't go out drinking with those people. No, you sh- Hey, should you really be doing this? Hey, why aren't you going to church? You didn't go to Anthem tonight? Why didn't you go to Anthem? Do you not love Doug? Do you not love Jesus? Is that what it is, right? You're just the, the critical, judgmental person on this side because you kind of have this whole unbalanced view of greatness. On this side, however... You are the person who is so focused on goodness, on love, on mercy, on peace, on all these things that you're the no-conflict person. Your friend comes home in a drunken stupor, right? Your roommate, and is just throwing up in your living room on a rug, which you purchased and he didn't, right? And you're just like, oh, I have to clean that up again, right? And you want to just go to this person and go, what is wrong with you that you would do this to your body, but you think, oh, that wouldn't be loving, right? And so you're like, oh, bro, it's cool. Just kind of, here, I'll hold your hair. Okay. I don't know why you have a man bun, but I'm not going to say that out loud. I'll just <laughs> hold it right there, right? Right? You're just, there's no conflict. You know, they come in. They use your bathroom. They don't flush. You're offended. It smells terrible. And you just want to say something, but you're like, oh, no conflict, right? If I say something, then they'll think I'm not a Christian, and then, uh, right? So you just stay shriveled up in this shell of yourself the whole time while they walk on you, right? And that's the whole other end of the the spectrum here. There's uh, imbalance there. What does God want from you? Well, I think he wants something, if he is both great and good, he wants something like uh, what Paul writes in Ephesians 4.15. We are, as believers, to speak the truth, speak the truth, but in love, Right? There's an axiom we have about this, and it says this, throw catchable passes, right? Uh, if you've ever played sports, I'm sorry for those of you who hate sports. There's a lot of sports metaphors because I love sports. Anyway, so in sports, right, if I have a, a ball and someone's running, I can throw it as hard as I can at their head from like four feet, or I could throw it in a way that they can receive it, right? And what Paul's saying here is when you speak and you communicate, you learn to throw catchable passes. You throw it to them. You don't avoid conflict you definitely throw it to them but you throw it to them in a way that they're going to receive it or that they're going to have the best possible chance to receive it so when you're when your roommates are doing stuff they're not supposed to you go hey listen i love you i know i only have like seven dollars of relational currency to spend right here i must spend six of them and i love you is this really the best approach for your life i love you it seems like this is not getting you where you want to go have you thought about that how are you processing through that right They may blow up, they may not, but you've asked it in a loving way. Hey, dude, listen, 
let's talk about last night. He threw up on my carpet again. It's like the 12th time. Is going out and getting plastered all the time. Really, the best use of your time and your dollars, your resources. You have such a bright future. Are, are you upset? Are you uh, in pain? Is there anything we need to talk about? Because it hurts me that you are doing this to your body. There's nothing unloving. It's actually unloving to not say anything. There is the guise of, oh, I'm being loving, so I'm avoiding conflict. No, that's actually not being loving. That's being a jerk to your roommate. And over here, when you're acting in judgment, this is equally not actually judging them because all they hear is, right? And so you've got to learn to do both, which is to throw Kessel passes. You speak the truth in love. Why? Because God has called you to be both great as well as good and invaluable. Final application, romantic relationships. Now we're getting to the good stuff. Everyone's Iris perked up. There are two phrases I want to mention, and both of them, I think, indicate culturally where we have, um, in our views of dating, um, moved to one side or the other. And the first one is this. Nice guys finish. Right. You know what we say when we talk about guys who finish last, those nice guys that finish last? These are guys who are real good. They're moral. They got high character. And, you know, I ask girls all the time, hey, what do you think about so-and-so? And I go, oh, yeah, he's real, he's real nice. Okay, would you date him? <laughs> no. <laughs> and I'm like, whoa, 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 if he's nice and he'd be good to you, why wouldn't you date him? They're like, well. And then I was like, well, he's just not my type. Well, what's your type? Is it a not nice person? No, 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 I'm, after, I'm going after nice people. Well, he's a nice person. No, <laughs> not him. Okay, well. Like, what's going on here? And here's what they're trying to say without saying it, right? He's a good boy, but he's boring, right? He loves, he's focused so much on character, but there's no competency, right? He's a dud. There's nothing great about him. He has no plan. He has no agenda. He has no career path. When he walks in the room, there's no confidence. There's no boldness. He's just this shriveled little, but I'm nice, right? And that's what girls are trying to say. So guys, hey, if, if in here ladies are telling you that uh, I'm putting you in the friend zone, right? You're a nice guy, but it's, it's not you, it's me. Here's what they're saying. Listen, I love you. I'm telling you this. Here's what they're saying. They're saying, I want you to embrace the greatness that God has made for you as a man. Or if ladies, uh, if guys have said this to you, she's nice, uh, you know, she's got great personality and great character, right? What they're saying to you is, I want you to embrace the greatness that God has put inside of you as a human being. I, I want you to pursue God with a boldness. I want you to go somewhere in life. I want you to see everything God has designed for you. And then at that point, maybe I'll have a secondary conversation. And this is not being mean or being, being a bad for you guys. It's just saying this, grow up, right? Grow up to what God wants you to be. Stop piddling around where it's safe and where you're in your comfort zone and follow God with a bold plan. That's what people are telling you in the dating world, okay? Can, you, can I get an amen for this, you guys? Okay, okay, okay. Listen, listen, I'm not mad at you if someone's ever told you you're a good boy or a good girl. I'm not mad, I'm not speaking ill of you. I'm saying, is it at all possible that you are out of balance in focusing far too much on goodness and not thinking about the power and the greatness that God's put inside of you? And I think it is. He has put it inside of you. If you're someone who's a good person, he's put that inside of you because he made you in his own creation. And guess what? He's great and good. So okay, just embrace it, right? Um, if, if someone at church says, hey, I want you to go invite people to come to church, and you're like, man, I really want to invite people, but I'm really scared. There's the moment where you're not being great. Go trust God. Step out of your comfort zone. Invite someone to come to, tr uh, to church with you and watch God do something. And then grow from that experience. Go, oh, my gosh, wow, this is incredible. When I invite people to come to church, they come with me. Why? Because God is great and he's inside of you. That's how that's supposed to work. And maybe a girl will date you or a guy will date you. Maybe they won't. But when you tapped into God's greatness and your goodness at the same time, you probably won't care about it because you're so satisfied in Jesus. And you're like, oh, this isn't for me. Singleness is fine as long as I have Jesus, right? That's how that works. Okay, I'm done. Sorry. Now, other side, other side. Okay. Other side. You can tell I've thought about this for a while. Um, here's the second phrase. She's just not the kind you... Well, she's not, she's the kind you date, but she's not the kind you, yeah, okay, or he's the kind you date, but not the kind you marry. Okay, what are we talking about? These are people on this side who are maybe out of balance on the side of greatness. Man, they're powerful, con uh, like confident, got that swag, right? Guy comes to the room, he's like, I see three girls checking me out, right? 
It's the girl who walks in and does the post-up thing where she walks in and she surveys the room. She's like, whose number do I want? Okay, right? There's just a lot of confidence and swagger, just a focus on self, like they know they got it all going on. They're all that plus a bag of chips, right? It's the full value meal of a human being here, right? But here's what happens inevitably in every part of that relationship uh, along the sequence uh, when you get to the end, right? There's always the inevitable breakup. And when the breakup happens, you go, why? What's, I thought things were good. Like we started off right. Like it was hot and heavy and it was great, whatever. And now we're breaking up. What happened? And the guy can't articulate. He's just like, look, man, I just, I don't know if I'm ready to get married. or I don't know if I'm ready to commit to this thing. Like I love having a good time with you, but I just w- wasn't sure we were ready to get married, right? They have that kind of conversation with you. Here's what they're trying to say right? When I think about my future son or daughter, and I ask myself, do I want, girls, do I want you, if I, if your character was inside my daughter, would I want that? The answer was no, so I broke up with you. You are fun to be at with parties, but I don't want you to be my wife or the mother to my children. Or they're saying, you are fun to be at with parties and my plus one on things, but I don't want your character and my future kids because you are a grown-up boy and you are a grown-up girl and I'm looking for a man or I'm looking for a woman right this is a lot of greatness but there's no character there's no consistency there's no love and tenderness and all of the infrastructure that needs to go on inside of your soul to support a long-term healthy relationship and so to you if you're the person who's got all the guys or all the girls coming after you but you, you know you're like Taylor Swift you go on many dates but you can't make them stay, right? <laughs> right? If this is you, might it be that what you need is not another date. You need some character refinement. You need to go, hey, it's really okay for me to cut my hair in the mom cut and start thinking about my future as a woman or as a man of God and to start thinking about all those things that grown-ups think about. In this case, man or woman, grow up Grow up into that character. Spend some time on your internal life. Spend some time praying. Get discipled. Come to understand who God has made you to be. Quit playing around. Quit playing the dating game and just get locked in on who Jesus is and how he's made you. He's not just made you to be powerful and amazing and confident. He has made you to be tender and loving and humble. He's made you to cry at commercials that are supposed to make you cry. Guys, when you watch Creed, the remake of the Rocky film, right? And, and, and Sylvester Stallone's talking about his wife dying of cancer. It's really okay for you to cry. It's not okay for you to not cry, right? Have you guys seen that movie Creed? It's on Netflix. It's awesome. May contain language, right? I just want to tell you that, right? But, but you just need to know, if you watch that, I'm not saying you should. Man, if there's something that's sad, learn to cry. Get in touch with your emotions. God's made you an emotional being. And learn that that's all good. Don't just be great. Don't just be good, guys. Be both the call of a disciple in all areas of life is to learn to live in the tension of God's character. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you uh, for this awesome time where we have a series that we can just kick things off, talking about the best thing we could talk about, you, and the way you created everything, and the way that you want to put your character into those of us who are following Jesus the way you want to move us all towards the fullness of human flourishing, which is to say we learn to become increasingly comfortable with the tension that you've made us both great and good, that we don't have to be afraid of our own power, that we don't have to be afraid of the fact that you've made us to step out of our comfort zone, but that we also don't have to be afraid to work on the internal things, the character, the consistency, the goodness you've put in us. And so, Lord, as we possibly begin this journey for the first time, I'm aware that there are people in this room who've never considered it and they're standing on a ledge right now and ready to jump off into the deep, uh, beautiful valley that is your love and your mercy. And they're ready to start following you for the first time. And there are people in this room, Jesus, who've been following you and they're a little bit um, just maybe phased by some things going on in life, disillusioned, just frustrated. And they're coming to you with a lot of hurt, habits, and hangups. And there are people in this room that are following you full speed and they're maybe a little tired because they've been running so hard. Lord, whoever's in this room, I pray right now, Jesus, please, in your mercy, teach us how to love you. Teach us how to receive love from you. Teach us how to be great. And teach us how to be good. And help that not to be in tension for too long. 
that we might be ultimately satisfied in who you are and that we may find whatever it is you want for us. And so as we get ready to respond here in two weeks, I pray that we'd sing this song just as a declaration of our heart's cry to you. And the Lord, as people get prayed for, that you do ministry here today. And the Lord, if people have questions, they'd be answered here today. And if people want to start a journey, they would start today. And if people want to stop messing around, it'd stop being messed around today. Lord, we're all on this life raft. Just tell us where the wreckage is, but Lord, get us on that life raft first. Help us to understand what our mission is. Help us to understand what our purpose is. Help us to understand who you are. Help us to see you clearly, not just like a fuzzy object. Help us to see you clearly so when you move, we move. When you talk, we listen. When you speak, we hear and we proclaim to others and bring them onto the life raft for your glory, for our good.